Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movements. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, um, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio with Jacob and Zane on the line today. Welcome. All right. Um, before um, we move on with the program, I'd like to um, acknowledge um, that FreeCR today is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. Um, like to pay our respect um, to elders, past and present, and acknowledge that you know sovereignty. Um, was never ceded, and that we it always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Here, here, and uh, there's been some interesting developments here in uh, Kulin Nation country this uh, this week. Yeah, well, we have a pretty packed um, program today. We have an uh, interview with um, a lawyer called Belinda Liu, who's going to be talking to us a bit about um, this sort of sensitive topic of elder abuse um, and elder abuse prevention and so on. So she'll um, be giving a bit of rundown on that. Um, and then later on, we're going to be talking to Alex Bainbridge from Queensland. He's going to give us a bit of a analysis, kind of a bit of a radical analysis on um, the Queensland state election because there is quite a lot at stake in this state election, um, including the potential possibly that the Greens might win the first lower house seat and they're running and also on a pretty, you know, left-wing, strong left-wing platform there. Um and then there's also um, there's a, we'll also be doing an interview with Farida Iqbal, who is a LGBT activist based in Moreland. Um, we're going to be talking to her about you know the Smith Bill and kind of like the problems of it, and you know basically the some future action that might be taking place um, coming out of. Um, for the purpose of putting the pressure on the government to sort of pass a marriage equality bill that doesn't have all these you know extra sort of things that make it easier to, you know, be basically give increased right to bigots to be bigots against um LGBTI people. Um but the um the thing I kinda wanna talk about right now is many listeners are probably aware that the situation on Manus Island has, you know, gone has hit another stage. Um, we've basically PNG authorities yesterday basically moved in and um, told men um, told the men on mass to leave the detention centre um, because you know right now there's a bit of a set, um, the detention centre Manus Island has been shut. Um, all food and water power has all been cut. Um, and but more than three hundred and fifty men remain holed up in there and they're not leaving because on the basis that they don't want um, out of protest because they don't want to be transferred to another prison because basically the alternative accommodation that's being provided by the government is basically, you know, um, places with worse conditions than what Manus is and they're, they're you know, fighting for their freedom. Um, I mean, uh, 
what um what happened is the um, PNG you know invaded the um the police basically invaded the detention center and arrested Baruz um, Bulshani, um who's quite well known as one of the you know um the well known kind of um um Iranian Kurdish um journalist who's been giving us you know the first hand accounts of what's happening on Manus and. Um, but he was arrested, um, but then released. So we're not sure what's happening. He has been giving, um, he gave a report a few hours ago. He, everything he is fine, but obviously, you know, the situation is still absolutely terrible. Um, so there will be a refugee rally at 5.30 today at the State Library, continuing on from the room, because really this is at crisis point right now. Um, and obviously we're demanding that the government, um, you know, Manus does need to be evacuated, but these refugees need to be brought here or at least be put into brought into places that are safe um, and you know being taken to another prison island is not um, is not what 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 is needed not at all um, but and I think I wanted to comment a bit on sort of like some of the the more kind of despicable kind of political responses from our um, leaders. Um, Peter Dutton, um, you know, he kind of tweeted that, you know, this is, you know, the situation of Manus is like when, when you want, um, when you found a new house for tenants, but the tenants refuse to leave. Like, that is his whole analysis of the whole situation. Um, and Malcolm Turnbull is basically saying that, you know, we're not going to be pressured by these refugees. We're going to continue to treat them as inhumanely as humanly possible because we don't want to bow to this pressure of, you know, being forced to treat people humanely. Like, that would be absolutely terrible. Mm. And, of course, um, the Labor Party, um, particularly Bill Shorten, still refused to condemn the offshore detention, that offshore detention is a completely inhumane um, way of treating and processing refugees. They refused to say anything. Um, they refused to say anything about, you know, closing the cans. The best thing they'll say is that they'll say that, oh, um, you know, it's um, the best thing they can say is that, oh, yes, the Liberal Party hasn't been handling this situation well and it is pretty bad. They'll acknowledge mm. the terribleness of the situation but not actually... We would be much better alternative managers of the torture camps. Yes, that's basically what they're saying. And mm. um, Bill Shorten is basically the only kind of positive statement saying, oh, yes, he's encouraging Malcolm Turnbull to take up the 150 uh, refugee... Uh, the New Zealand deal of um, New Zealand taking 150 refugees. And I do think credit has to be given, um, do must be given to um, Jacinta Arden because um, I think she has played a reasonably good role in this. I mean, she has put out the offer for 150 refugees. I mean, it could be more. They could be doing more. But at the same time, she has been quite insistent about, you know, putting out this deal out there. And there's also obviously grassroots pressure in New Zealand right now with, you know, a lot of... Um, you know, with a lot of activists, you know, sh expressing solidarity with um, the men on Manus and, you know, also putting kind of the demand to New Zealand to sort of put the pressure on the Australian government. Hmm. Yeah, it's an interesting development because we reported earlier, a couple of weeks back, that um, New Zealand Labor had formed coalition government with basically the New Zealand equivalent of one nation, hmm. New Zealand first. Uh, it's an interesting sort of dynamic look. I, I'd I'd assume that New Zealand first would uh, be hostile towards mm. refugees and asylum seekers. Well, just um, maybe I've I have actually heard from speaking to activists um, in New Zealand that 
New Zealand First are probably not as bad as One Nation. I mean, the coalition is still problematic, but at the same time, it's probably a bit misleading to completely compare them to One Nation. Okay. Um, Although they do have similar kind of nationalistic policies. Um, Overall, I've, from, you know, based on some of the reports I've heard from activists, they generally have seen the election of Labor as a generally positive thing for activists because. Uh, it's in the context of having seven years or years of Tory rule. Mm. Um, and Jacinta is proving to be someone that is much more receptive to uh, still, you know, still obviously hasn't made a broke, broken away from like the neoliberal, you know, consensus. But the the Labour Party in, um, in New Zealand, similar to, you know, the Labour Party, you know, here are much more receptive to the pressure of social movements than, than the Tories were in the past seven years. So mm. that's what one of the, the positive things that, you know, activists have kind of said about this um, the election of Jacinta. Mm. Um, now, I kind of wanted to talk uh, maybe about one little thing before um, um, talk a bit of a, about a new story. This is actually coming, uh, an article I've just written for Green Left Weekly coming up in next week's issue, but I think it's kind of important to talk about it now. Um, you, many of um, uh, listeners might have um, seen this around the news about um, basically about how, you know, the Greens voted to block public housing in um, Ashburton at the Markham Estate. Um, that is actually incredibly misleading um, information that's kind of been put forward, put around. And basically what has happened in like that past week is um, the Markham Estate is, and we've previously done an interview, is a, is a public housing um, um, site in um, Ashburton. Um, and it has like 52, 52 to 53 um, public housing estates. They're quite run down. Um, and so the state Labor government has essentially been pushing a redevelopment project for that side. And the redevelopment project is basically handing over 70% of the land to private developers. Um, and they get a bill, and the plan was to build at least 184 private dwellings and private apartments uh, in, a, uh, in exchange for at least 62. Public um, new public housing estates being built, um, um, housing units, housing units, which is basically like a ten percent increase from what they had before, which was fifty three. And so this is this in the context of how many people being um, without secure kind of over twenty thousand. Yeah, and so. What the, um what um what happened in on the state parliament like a few weeks ago is basically the Greens and the Liberals voted to um for this planning amendment in parliament and basically this amendment basically they basically revoked this planning amendment and this planning amendment would basically transfer control of the site to the state government. Um, they have revoked that so now the planning is gone straight to the council, which is. A win in a way from um, because basically the council um, does not actually support this whole privatization of land. Um, they're not willing to sell off the land, and so the ne- the next step is to put the pressure on the council to sort of commit to what the residents of Ashburton want. And the residents in Ashburton have been campaigning for that site to not be you know to not be sold off um, and to actually be you know used um, to double the amount of public housing that is on that, uh, that estate. Mm. Um, however, you know, 
the Labor Party have cynically tried to, you know, paint um, what um, what the Greens and the Liberals vote for as a way as blocking public housing. Although this is not something I was able to express in the article, but I kind of want to explain this as well um, about the Liberals. Um, the only reason the Liberals are, are sort of playing a progressive role in this sort of struggle is the fact that they represent that seat of Ashburton and there's been a strong kind of grassroots campaign. Um, they've also responded to the more conservative elements of that campaign and some of the more conservative elements of that campaign are like opposing the redevelopment on the grounds that they don't want six-storey or five-storey buildings. And so that's what the the Liberals have been kind of emphasising in their campaign. They're not doing, they have not been emphasising the public housing kind of component of it. Mm. Um, and also it's kind of like a cynical way that they can, you know, have the go at Labor, basically. Mm. Whereas uh, if they were in government, you can be sure they'd be hocking yeah. it off as well. Well, the the thing is they've um, they already acknowledged, if you look at the mainstream media, the Liberal MP who kind of wrote for this amendment basically said that, oh, yes, when it comes to privatisation of public housing estates, we'll look at it at a case-by-case basis, whereas the Greens, um, give credit, they have taken a principal position where they've said we're completely against any sell-off of public land and mm. we will not accept any sell-off of public land in, ex- in exchange for a measly increase in public housing. Because mm. um, really, if if this state government was serious about building public housing, they would be using the land, the existing land, and investing in you know improving the, the public housing that's already there on that land and then building, expanding it and extending mm. it. I mean, it's not like the state government is um, a uh, small investor who's wanting to build one unit and they don't have any experience. The state government builds stuff all the time. There's huge economies of scale. They could build public housing. And as we know, the way that people live in public housing is they rent. It Mm. is cheaper than um, market rent, but... It is a revenue-generating asset. They get money for it. So it's not like building public housing is this kind of black hole that you throw away money and you never get it back. State governments can invest in public housing and they will make their money back. So Mm. that, to me, just stands out in this whole thing. It's just such weasel words from the Labor Party. Mm. And they must know that all they need to do is turn back the clock 30 or 40 years and do what was normal in the post-war period from like the 1950s until the sort of mid to late 1970s and build more public housing, Mm. not get private companies to build like a smattering of new public housing. Mm. The state government themselves need to update their housing stock and and double it, mm. not just in Ashburton but elsewhere. Mm. Well, I'm going to do, try and do a bit more of analysis on this in you know future Green Left Weekly articles, but I think one kind of important thing is the reason why that um, the state government is going for these kind of flawed sort of private mix of private public de- pri- um, developments. So also, the social housing also fits in there. It's basically... This goes uh, with all housing developments. Um, when it comes to housing developers, they, they're right in the pockets of private developers and they don't want to do anything that would upset mm. private developers mm. um, because, you know, actually signif- um, massively increasing um, public housing would actually put a lot of pressure on private developers. Yeah, that's right. Um, it would drive down rents, etc. and... Basically, you know, the housing, um, you know, the housing, the private developers don't actually want that. 
Um, they just want to be able to profit off the off massive apartments, and that was one of the other problems with the Ashburn site. This in redevelopment, if this redevelopment would have gone ahead, it would have negatively impacted on the area quite significantly because you'd have all these expensive, nice apartments, and then they'll just go and drive up the the rent um, in the surrounding areas. Not that Ashburn is a, a particularly cheap area anyway, but that's besides the point. Hmm. Anyway, I'm just going to go quickly get the net first interview lined up. <clears throat> Sweet. It is 19 minutes past seven on Friday morning, the 24th of the 11th, and we've got Belinda Lowe from the Eastern Community Legal Centre. Welcome, yeah. Belinda. Hi, thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, not a problem. All right, so um, I guess what we're supposed to be interviewing you about is this um, whole topic of, you know, elder abuse and prevention, and maybe you can tell us a bit about, you know, your work um, in that kind of area and, you know, Give us a bit of background. Sure. So the Eastern Community Legal Centre, as well as a number of um, legal centres in Victoria particularly, um, have been really concerned about um, elder abuse happening in our communities for quite some time. So elder abuse is um, something that uh, maybe is getting a little bit more um, sort of noticed, but um, a lot of it that is still happening is still um, not being reported. And essentially, elder abuse is um, uh, violence that occurs with, uh, within, often within the family unit towards the older person within the family. And often it occurs um, either um, when an older parent um, has either um, accepted their adult family member to come back to live with them and then violence is perpetrated against them in a number of forms and you know um, and it's got um, a very close link to family violence in that it uh, also um, has got to do with family members perpetrating this violence which of course means that um, the victims of elder abuse being the older people are very reluctant to uh, report the violence to the authorities because it is their family members often their children mm. and so the violence that takes um, takes place is, you know, um, similar to uh, family violence in all its forms, being physical um, uh, and um, also it can be emotional, verbal, psychological and financial um, elder abuse. And then uh, for um, some very, very unfortunate cases of elder abuse occur in um, uh, some, potentially in some aged care facilities uh, that, or, or potentially um, by some carers as well, and that can also potentially include sexual abuse as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and in oh, sorry, go, sorry. <laughs> I, was, I was just going to ask, Belinda. Um, you, you've spoken about aged care, and we know that that's very uh, expensive. How, how much do you think that the pressures of um, aged care costs? and also housing costs that may cause people mm. to want mm. to move back in with their older uh, mm. parents or whatever, how much do you oh, think that yeah. that contributes to these sort of uh, situations of, of elder abuse? Oh, I'm sure that it plays a very big factor in it, um, that, uh, you know, the the cost of housing is so difficult, uh, you know, and, and we all know about that, like it gets uh, worse and worse as, um, <laughs> as society grows, I suppose, and... Um, and has um, capitalism just continues, but um, and that does play and place an increasing pressure on um, the family unit as well. And apart from uh, 
you know, the, the cost of housing. It's also, uh, you know, if an adult child has moved away, let's say, either to study or to work, might have their own family, they might have a family breakup as well and then want to, um, and then realise that they don't have uh, a lot of resources to be able to live by themselves. So a mum and dad or dad um, come uh, say to them to come back home and, and that might be fine for a little while, but the increasing pressures, I'm sure, play a significant part. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are sort of the kind of like the, you know, social kind of factors that kind of contribute to elder abuse and sort of what are kind of the, because um, apparently um, when we did this in Q, uh we heard that the, um, your work kind of specialises in elder abuse kind of prevention and sort of, can you tell us a bit more about that? Sure. Well, we have a program, so it's not me, <laughs> but we have a program um, called the Elder, it's the Elder Abuse Prevention um, Coordinator who um, coordinates a range of services in the eastern region to raise awareness of um, elder abuse occurring within our community. And so those, um, and so it's called the Eastern Elder Abuse um, Network, and it's the biggest network in Australia of its kind. And so our um, fabulous elder abuse prevention coordinator um, you know facilitates uh, these networks where um, the organizations such as um, community health um, and uh, statutory authorities such as the police um, and you know uh, organizations from um, that are part of DHHS as well as other NGO um, NGOs such as the Eastern Community Legal Center um, meet on a regular basis to discuss potential um, concerns that they have about their um, community members or um, people coming into their services and what's been raised a, n- a number of issues have been raised but what's been raised are um, a myriad of different issues such as uh, you know um, some some uh, older people um, have been reported to have been uh, walked to their banks to um, withdraw money at the behest of their um, family members uh, and to hand that money over, you know, um, and that is, you know, like it's like done right in front of, um, has been done before, right in front of um, services who've been very, very concerned about, you know, the potential, the abuse that they believe is occurring there. And um, so this particular network is to... um, uh, try and get particularly um, the community to understand that this is uh, not only wrong, but there are services around that can help them. So there are also uh, the the police out in the east as well have got a um, have got you know very strong understanding of elder abuse. I think compared to some other areas, and uh, they also understand that uh, even if uh, they intervene. In a lot of cases, our um, older community members don't want to continue uh, going through the legal process because they don't want their um, family members to, you know, fall within the justice system. And uh, something that I do know personally, having um, just done work as a lawyer in this area, is that you know we have a number of older um, clients being. Uh, any gender um, coming to us who, uh, who the police have attempted to um, obtain just a very limited intervention order on their behalf to stop their family member from behaving in a violent manner towards them in their home. And uh, I have yet to find an, um, a client who fits within this demographic who wants to pursue with that very limited form of intervention order. And so, uh, you know, the whole stigma of having um, to admit that your 
family member is perpetrating this type of violence against you is something that you know, our older community members who are experiencing this don't want to admit, mm. which, again, you know, is understandable as well. So um, the, the elder, Eastern Elder Abuse Network are looking all the time at different ways that they can try and assist um, our uh, clients who fit within this demographic without them... Uh, well, sorry, with recognising also that, you know, the justice system isn't necessarily the best way. Yeah, right. That must be... Pretty... I mean, if you don't want to pursue it, you're not going to go through with it, right? Yeah. That must be a, a challenging uh, environment for a law centre because a, a kind of so much of what uh, legal practitioners do does involve... Uh, the courts and the police um, and intervention yeah. <laughs> orders. So it must be challenging yeah. for you to find ways oh. to assist people who absolutely. don't want to invoke the police. Yeah, absolutely. And look, something else that the um, the elder abuse prevention coordinator in our organisation has raised on a number of times together with um, other organisations as well is it's not like you know these are what I've described as you know significant forms of elder abuse but also financial elder abuse is that you know is elder abuse when it takes its financial form is really um, insidious so you know that's um, basically coercing your um, your older family member to change their will uh, particularly when they have um, they may not have legal capacity or it looks like they're moving towards losing legal capacity. Um, and, you know, we, we know that we have an ageing population and with an ageing population comes, um, you know, health conditions coming with age, such as dementia. And um, so one of the um, one of the sort of advocacy um, issues that um, the network have been looking at is to try and also encourage the private legal professions. So um, community legal centres don't, a lot of them don't write rules. Um, it's not part of our um, work to do that type of work uh, anymore. And um, and that is something that the private profession, you know, you know, it's a lot of them, it's their bread and butter. And, um, and I, and now there's more understanding, but it could be better, um, but, you know, there's a gradual understanding in the private legal community about the um, impact of, uh, elder abuse on um, on the on you know these legal issues such as you know wills being actually created in a way that is you know is potentially illegal and so um, hopefully over time there'll be more focus on um, will makers <laughs> those lawyers who write wills to um, be able to really uh, assess that their um, older client, you know, especially if they've had a will and then they've come in and they want to change it and they come in with a family member who is in the room or brings them, you know, that sort of thing, to be able to have some sort of assessment of making sure that they act, this is actually what they want and that they have, um, the, and that they're not either being coerced or that they actually have legal capacity. Mm. And I guess if they have changed it basically under duress, then it's important for them to be able to find a back channel to go back and change Absolutely. it back to, to what yeah. they actually want it to, to be. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, when you think about it, it's, I mean, if you're under duress and you don't know you're under duress, let's say, or you... Um, but if you're under duress, you, you're not... You're very unlikely to say somebody to a third person, I'm under duress, mm. you know, especially if you're in a position where you might be physically getting more frail, where you feel that you need to rely upon your family member um, to help uh, 
get your groceries for you or to help you be mobile as well. So you may not necessarily see that as duress or you may not feel that you can articulate that as well. So uh, the Eastern Outer Abuse Network, are, you know, one of their... Um, one of the things that they focus on as well is looking at different ways where uh, third parties such as private lawyers might be able to um, uh, be forced to, you know, learn how to um, spot these issues to be able to assist um, clients in these circumstances. Mm. And you, you mentioned there's parallels with um, with with domestic abuse and, and yes. partner violence. Um, do those parallels extend to the gendered nature of it? Is this something that you find affects more older women or is this affecting women and men fairly equally yeah, that, or what's yeah. the sort of... Um, so with, uh, yeah, so in, um, with family violence, you know, we all know that uh, that predominantly affects women and the main perpetrators of family violence and intimate partner violence is um, men uh, against women uh, in when we're talking about um, heterosexual relationships. But in elder abuse, the uh, the marked nature of um, violence is it's, it's not so apparent. Mm. I can't tell you that it's equal, <laughs> yeah. but it's not so apparent. So um, okay. there are... Yeah, so, so uh, I think that there are still there are still more women who experience um, elder abuse, but in than men. But also in terms of uh, the perpetration of elder abuse upon the um, older person, it's it's not necessarily more men that perpetrate hmm. um, elder abuse upon women. Okay, and so uh, if if we have any listeners who have uh, experienced elder abuse or who have friends or family members or whatever who are yeah. in this kind of situation, how can they get in contact with the Eastern Community Legal Centre and <laughs> seek some advice yeah. or some assistance? Sure, sure. So um, all they need to do is to call um, uh, this number. So it's nine seven six two. Yep. Six two five zero. Yep. Or, um, but you can also Google us. Uh, so it's um, uh, eclc. .org.au, but uh, if you don't live in the eastern region or the older person that you're concerned about is not um, in the broad eastern region, there are other community legal centres that could potentially assist as well. So I'd also recommend that you contact our peak body, which is the Federation of Community Legal Centres, that can um, help you find your closest legal centre. And their um, number is... Uh, I can't remember right now, so I'll give you their website. Sorry, is communitylaw.org.au. Yeah, cool. All right. Well, um, yeah, we'll uh, we'll probably keep keep going with the show. But um, thank you very much for talking with us this morning. Um, Absolute pleasure, Belinda. Because yeah, it's uh, it's people work hard their whole lives, and then it's uh, it's not cool to to be put in that situation once they're in those older years and they're just trying to. No. Yeah, no, and they're often um, very invisible from society. So, um, yeah, we should all keep an eye out. Indeed. All right. Thanks yeah. again. Yeah, thank, thank you. you very much, Belinda. Thank you. Uh, yes, Belinda Lowe there from the Eastern Community Legal Centre. And, uh, yeah, as mentioned, if, if you are experiencing uh, some form of elder abuse, be it physical or financial, or if you have a friend or, or a, a family member or extended family member or whatever who's in that situation, uh, yeah, check out the Federation of Community Legal Centres or the Eastern Community Legal Centre. You can Google them and, uh, yeah, you can get some assistance and find out what your rights are and stuff. Right. We'll play a quick announcement and then go into another round of news. 
Alright, you are listening to Green Left Weekly Radio. It's um, 7.36am on 855am dial. Um, just wanted to bring up something, just a, bit, just a flag, something um, I'm not going to mention anything more, but I've just noticed on Facebook, um, in terms of um, Sydney activists, there's been um, reports anecdotally of a number of Sydney activists who have had visits from the police. Um, they haven't been charged with anything, they've just been having, like, there's one notable um, high-profile um, Greens New South Wales activist who was act- whose house was actually visited by the police. Um, he wasn't home at the time, and um, they were, but, they were, um, but, he came, but they came to his house and were actually asking his parents about, what, about his um, whereabouts and so on. So that's um, something to watch out for. It could appear into the mainstream media at some point, um, but I imagine it has something to do with... This whole refugee campaign, um, there's been like a, a clear presence, a heavy-handed police presence at a lot of rallies, um, and there's also potential possibility, you know, that you know, police are kind of looking um, because of the government's kind of, you know, the government's kind of feeling uncomfortable about this sort of mass opposition, this opposition to the refugee policy, that there might be some attempts to intimidate activists. Um, in a way to swing things into the favour of the the status quo. Um, there was already a case of um, two activists being strip-searched um, by police, which got reported into the mainstream media. Um, so, yeah, stay tuned for further updates on that situation in Sydney. Hmm. And I've seen... Uh, I know that there's been this ad. I'm just trying to find it now, a little cart that gets played on 3CR. Give a no-comment interview if you're in that situation. Yeah. Uh, I think you're required to sort of say, you know, maybe show some ID. But beyond that, I think it's your legal rights to say, um, is that all, officer? Um, because it would be nice if you could just leave me alone. Mm. <laughs> and uh, I don't think you're actually required to say anything. And the police may tell you to, you know, to keep it quiet or not to tell anyone. That is complete bluff. There is no obligation on you whatsoever to keep things secret. If you want to talk to uh, activist media or friends or whatever and say, hey, the police came around to my house and were asking me questions, that's completely within your rights to do that. Mm. And it's probably not a bad idea to do so. Yeah. Okay, I want to talk about now. Move on to this other story. I mean, it might be a few days late, um, but basically, I wanted to talk about how, you know, how um, there's been this recent um, the the musician Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds Seeds has had a lot of publicity lately, um, mainly for because of the fact that he's refused to endorse the BDS campaign and actually played two shows in Tel Tel Aviv in Israel. Um, this was despite the fact that, you know, um, you know, Roger Waters and Brian Inner actually reached out to him and, you know, made some really strong arguments on why he should support the BDS campaign. Um, and his whole response to it was completely naive and, well, it was completely ridiculous, actually, because his whole argument was he basically equivocated BDS to silencing of artists, which it's, and, you know, as... Um, Roger Waters, you know, states in his statement, this is actually not about music. This is about whether you stand um, for the rights of Palestinians. And I think, mm. it, and he thinks it's quite rich that, you know, Nick Cave can talk about this whole thing about um, being silenced when, you know, what about the millions of Palestinians who are being silenced every day by the mm. Israeli government? 
And worse, you know, physically abused, shot at, had sewage sprayed at their house, having to go through military checkpoints every time they want to go up the street and see a family member mm. or a friend or get medical attention. Mm. And it's also the part of the fact that, you know, when bands like Nick Cave and Radiohead actually, you know, they may say to themselves that, well, yes, we don't endorse the actions of Israel. In fact, um, Nick Cave, and this is why Nick Cave received a lot actually did sign onto a petition um, urging that these Palestinian protesters did not get charged. I mean, that's positive. Unfortunately, yeah, what it's not good that he did not endorse, um, uh, heed the call for the BDS campaign, um, boycott, divestment, sanctions. Um, and, you know, because the problem is when bands like Nick Cave and um, Radiohead perform in Israel and don't heed the call for the boycott, they're actually legitimizing Israel Mm-hmm. Um and and you know there's a real there's a really good reason why Netanyahu was celebrating um the fact that Radiohead was um, performing for them because it was like a big win for them. Um, whereas it it really does mean something when notable artists and bands um refuse to perform in Israel and refuse to give the apartheid state any sense of legitimacy Hmm. Um, and the attempts of, you know, the Israeli government to criminalise BDS um, and, you know, the art, I mean, there's like, the fact is that musicians like Roger Waters actually get quite a lot of flack for their stance, like um, um, they've been been the subject of of a smear campaign by the Zionist lobby in the United States and... They've lost, they've lost like millions of dollars uh, on the basis of, in sponsorships and the, because of their refusal to you know um, to stand with the uh, to, um, because of their stance on condemning the Israeli regime. Mm. Yeah, and I think Nick Cave has played this kind of edgy white liberal card where he's like, "Oh, well, I want to play there just to just to kind of tell the BDS people to go away because I'm not into being told what to do." Yeah, it's like, well. What sort of argument is that, Nick? Yes. Like, would you have played in apartheid just to show that, you know, people can't tell you not to boycott an apartheid state? Like, yep. apply that example to any other case where there is a organised boycott against a repressive, you know, imperial regime. Like, what what sort of ridiculous argument is that? Is like, oh, um. I'm sticking it to these people who want to tell me what to do. Mm. Very, and, very shallow and, and ridiculous argument, yeah. really. Yeah, and I um, urge listeners to actually um, to look at um, the statements that various musicians have made um, in response to Nick Cave. In fact, Brian Eno and um, Roger Waters' statements, um, I don't have them in front of me right now, but they've very, very strong political statements that I think are definitely worth reading. And they also outline, you know, some really good arguments on why we should support the BDS campaign because one of the things I think about the BDS campaign is it has actually been a bit of a source of division amongst the left in some ways um, because there has been a number of people, you know, who have argued against um, the BDS campaign on u- using left-wing arguments, but at the same time, I don't... I think some of those arguments are problematic, but Roger Waters and Brian O'Neill you know, in their statements, put forward some really strong arguments on you know why we should support the BDS campaign, um, and why and why it's actually very important. Hmm. Yeah, it's good. I think it's like an ongoing process of clarifying why BDS is is an important thing, hmm. 
and by these argument by by these musicians having that debate, yep, it actually it it brings BDS back into the public spotlight and it sort of breathes new air into that whole campaign. So, mm. all right, um, we'll just go play announcer and I'll get the next interview lined up. All right, so on the line we have Alex Brainbridge. Um, he is an activist um, based in um, Brisbane and also the national co-convener of Socialist Alliance. Um, we're going to have a bit of a chat with him about you know, his take on the Queensland state election, which is going to be happening this Saturday. Um, it's going to go to the polls this Saturday. So, yeah, good morning, Alex. Uh, good morning, Jacob. All right, so what can you tell us about... Um, the state election, like draw generally in more of a general kind of analysis on, you know, what's really kind of at stake and what are kind of like the major issues of this Queensland election? Well, I think the um, there is a currently a minority Labor government in Queensland. So, I mean, at the question of government, the election will determine whether Labor gets it back in, either as a minority or a majority, or else whether the, um, the Liberal National Party, the LNP, gets in uh, instead. Now, there's a lot of analysis that basically says the LNP, the only way the LNP can win is with the support of One Nation. Um, and, you know, there's been a, a lot of media coverage. In fact, I would think in some ways overdue, uh, sorry, an over-exaggerated coverage of, um, of One Nation's prospects in, in this election. So that's going to be one thing to, to look out for. But on the other, on the other side of the spectrum, um, the Greens are looking to potentially win their, their very first seat in the Queensland Parliament. And um, that also could be, you know, like an interesting and a positive um, development if, if that unfolds. Yeah. In, terms of, in terms of the key issues, um, I think, I mean, number one would be you know, the Adani coal mine. Um, this election will determine the, the attitude of the new parliament to the, to the Adani coal mine. And, um, and then other issues include public housing, uh, abortion rights and um, and the uh, you know I guess the the, the stretch that hangs over the the return of an LNP because everyone remembers the last LNP government under Campbell Newman um, you know, there was thousands and thousands of job losses in the public sector. Hmm. And so, what what um can you tell us a bit about um um kind of like what what are some of the progressive candidates um who are running in the election? Yes, well, um, there are a number of progressive candidates. I mean, obviously, we're supporting Kamala Emanuel as a social science candidate in Azita McConnell. And, uh, you know, social science has, has run a very good campaign with small resources, so we're quite happy with about how that's gone. Uh, I mentioned earlier that the Greens are hoping to get seats for the first time, and there's three inner-city seats, including South Brisbane and also McConnell, um, mm. that, that the Greens are hoping that they might be able to win. Yep. Um, there is... Uh, already in the parliament is independent MP uh, Rob Pine up in Cairns. Um, he is the only the only parliamentarian who has voted against the Adani coal mine. Uh, he's the one that actually put abortion rights on the agenda by moving a private member's bill uh, on the issue in the last term of parliament. Um, so there are some of the examples of the progressive candidates, but you know, there's actually um, there's, there's a number of others as well. Yeah, You mentioned something about... Um about One Nation and how they've been getting kind of like kind of overexposure in the media. Do you believe that that's not really reflective of what what kind of votes they're going to get or do you think that 
there's a good chance that one seat I get a come away with a significant number of seats in this upcoming Queensland state election. Well, I mean, obviously we'll we'll see tomorrow when the results come out, and I I, I think it um, I think it's likely that One Nation will come away with a number of seats, um, and it's not out of the question they'll it'll be a relatively large number of seats. But um, the point that I would make is that, firstly, in large part this is possible because the mainstream media have treated One Nation as if they are a credible source, a credible, um, credible force in, in the election. Uh, One Nation has made wildly exaggerated claims about you know, if they form a government, uh, like as a majority party, um, and the media hasn't been you know, as critical as they ought to have been on those sorts of claims. And so my take on this is that the establishment and reflected in the establishment media, they know that both Labor and the LNP are on the nose. They know that most people are getting disillusioned, more and more people are getting disillusioned with the major capitalist parties and they want to see an alternative and they want to see some change. And from the establishment's point of view, they know that One Nation is no challenge to the status quo. They know they've seen One Nation's voting record in the federal parliament and it's 84% or something in in line with the LNP, that's the most uh, the crossbench party that has got the most common voting record with the with, um, with the coalition. Um, they know that if one nation is elected in Queensland, despite some bluff and bluster and some you know uh, uh, foolish policies and foolish statements, there's going to be no challenge to the status quo. In fact, if one nation gets elected, they will drag both major parties, Labor and the LNP, to the right. Mm. So. Uh, that, that's why they have been giving a lot more coverage to One Nation and not to the Greens and other progressive alternatives. Yeah. I guess one of the things I wanted to ask you about is um, about the Stop Adani campaign and kind of what impact that has had on the Queensland election. In fact, I'd like to you know hear more about what is what is Labor actually saying in response to this kind of grassroots pressure? I mean, there's been one statement that I've heard from, I think, the Queensland... Um, Labor Premier, or maybe it was just a Labor MP, where she basically said, you know, she was asked, queried about the Adani coal mine, and she was sort of giving this sort of impression, or not really indicating opposition, but sort of just saying, oh, it's not going to happen anyway. Like, um, so what? how has sort of Labor responded to this pressure from the growing kind of Stop Adani campaign and how they're trying to accommodate to it? Okay, there's a there's a... The Adani campaign has had a big impact on the election. I think it's actually, I think it is one of the key issues. I think it is going to be an issue which changes people's votes. And I think that, um, you know, there's been a lot of, there have been a lot of campaigners in the Stop Adani campaign that have had various different approaches and tactics towards it. Right now, as you speak, there are people up in northern Queensland that are, you know, organising blockade and other civil disobedience actions against the construction um, sites of the initial, you know, the, the early attempts to sort of start the initial construction work on the Adani mine. So that's happening right now, as we speak. Um, and, you know, there's the Stop Adani campaign has had a very active role on the election campaign, uh, disrupting the launches and the other public appearances of uh, of both of both major parties. Um, so, it's, as I said, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very strong issue and there's been a lot of campaigning around it. Just on um, Tuesday night this week, we had uh, hundreds of people... Um, had a had a peaceful sit-in in the Queen Street Mall, which is itself a civil disobedience action to do that, and Adani was the issue around which that action took place. Now, Labor's response, Labor has been, uh, in the last term of Parliament, absolutely more than, more than gung, more, more gung-ho than you can imagine. 
in support of Adani. So they've gone above and beyond. And not only have they given approval to the mine, they've also done things they didn't need to do, like they've talked about a royalty holiday and uh, and now a delayed royalty payment. They have uh, given Adani unlimited free access to water in the Great Artesian Basin. That could be totally detrimental to agriculture and a lot of other sections of the of the economy. But here, handed on a platter to Adani for free. Um, Anna Palaszczuk, the Premier, went to uh, India and to lobby on behalf of the uh, you know, Adani coal miners. Like they've gone bent over backwards to be the most vocal, ardent supporters of Adani they can possibly be. Now, of course, they've begun to realise, well, this is actually uh, costing them support because Adani is not exactly a popular coal mine. Uh, coal mine, you know, new coal mines at this point in time are insane to begin with. And in particular, because it's been a big, there's been a, there is a proposal on the table that there'll be a, a loan of almost $1 billion from the National um, Infrastructure Fund, the Northern Australia Infrastructure Fund, by the run by the federal government. And the Queensland government has got the power to, to block that loan if they, if they choose to. Um, now, even less unpopular, if so, even less popular than the, the Indani mine, this, this NAIF loan is, has got very little support in the population. So what the Premier announced at the very early first few days of the election campaign is that they will um, not approve, they will in fact veto this this NAIF loan. Now there's some sort of legal debate about exactly whether that it's too late, like whether they've already, um, whether that's now impossible given their previous support for uh, for Adani. But it's been, a, it's been an attempt to try and differentiate themselves from the LNT and try and gain a bit more ground um, with some of the inner city seats that they're worried about losing to the Green. Um, Zane, um, uh, Zane has a question. Yep. Yeah, just, um, I was just interested, um, Amy McMahon, the leader of the Queensland um, Greens, who's running in the seat of South Brisbane, is out of the three candidates that are kind of probably looking at maybe winning a seat, Amy McMahon is probably the most likely. There's been a lot of door knocking. I'm just wondering if you can comment, obviously, within the Greens, as much as they don't like to admit it, there's a bit of a spectrum with people like Lee Rhiannon or whatever, more on the left of the party, and then people like Di Natale more on the conservative or kind of neoliberals on bikes end of the spectrum. And I'm just wondering if you could comment on where, where do you think Amy McMahon sits on that spectrum and... Uh, as a branch, where do you think the Queensland Greens sit on that spectrum of, uh, you know, being more uh, activist or grassroots focused versus being a bit more kind of uh, conservative? Yeah, look, I think that... Uh, I, I personally I think it's a bit... We, you know, we need to be a bit cautious. I think that... Um, that yeah, I mean, a bit cautious about projecting onto the Greens the sort of the left and right thing. I think there's a, I think there's a lot of, a lot of, you know, there's sort of, uh, there, there, are, there are good people with good policies at all ends of the spectrums of the Greens, and there are, um, and you know, there's, there, I think the, the Greens as a whole are moving in a more moderate direction. That said, I think my personal assessment from the outside of Amy McMahon is that she is definitely um, an anti-capitalist candidate. She's sort of more on the anti-capitalist wing of the wing of the party, and, um, and I think it must be said that the Queensland Greens in this election have run a very 
creative and, you know, a left-wing campaign. And one of the points that they have made, which I think is the correct point, they've said that, you know, they might have got attention because they've stood up and opposed the Adani mine, and that's true. But if that's all they had done, they wouldn't have got the extra support they have been so far. It looks like they've been achieving. And the reason why they've got the extra support they've said is because they're not only talking about the Adani mine, they're also talking about a range of measures to you know, improve people's lives in a practical way. Um, and, you know, you might say bread and butter issues, but as I said, creative and, and interesting things. So like they've got a policy that they're campaigning on for $1 public transport um, anytime, anywhere, any suburb. Um, they've brought in a, a, a policy with um, rights for renters and housing affordability strategy that um, that's very good and speaks to, speaks to the practical needs that people have got and and I think that they're right when they say that you know yeah sure people might have got their attention because of the Adani mine but that wouldn't have been enough by them by itself it's because of the, the broader range of policies that the Greens have put forward so they have they have one extra support in this, in this campaign hmm. Okay um, we're running out of time now so do you have any final comments about the Queensland state election Alex? Well, obviously, we'll, it'll go to the ballot box tomorrow, so it'll be um, all eyes on the result. Uh, I think that, um, you know, obviously, I, I'm hoping to see, you know, gains by the progressive um, by the progressive side of the, the campaign. So I'm, I'm hoping to see Rob Pine return, and I'm hoping to see the Greens get elected, and I'm hoping to see a good vote for Socialist Alliance. So, um, but, yeah, see how it goes tomorrow. Hmm. Right. Thank you very much, Alex. <coughs> Cheers, Alex. Thanks for having me. Uh, yes, uh, Alex Bainbridge there talking about the uh, Queensland state election that's happening tomorrow. Alrighty, you are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR, Melbourne's most excellently radical radio station, 855 on your AM dial or listening online or on digital. And it is time for the activist calendar. Okay, so um, there's going to be quite a lot happening. Um, there's going to be a Stop Adani off um, protest at um, Downer's um, corporate office. Downer ED is the key co- um, company responsible for the construction of the Adani's destructive mine. Um, so that'll be happening at 2 p.m. 5 slash 567 Collins Street in the city. And this is hosted by Stop Adani Melbourne. Um, obviously, as I mentioned before, there'll be another rally from Manus and the Siege. Bring them here, 5.30 p.m. at the State Library. On Saturday, there'll be a solidarity conference. Um, Venezuela is not alone. That will be happening at 10 a.m. at the MUA, 46 Island Street in North Melbourne. Um, there'll be a fundraiser, Justice for Sisters. Um, Justice for Sisters is a group in Malaysia supporting trans people who are currently being criminalised by the state. Um, and so this is um, hosted by Rainbow Moreland. Um, and that'll be happening. It'll be a night of poetry, film and zines with all funds going to the organisation. That'll be happening at 6pm at New Futures Creative, 1 slash forward slash 377 Sydney Road in Coburg. Um, on Sunday, um, now on Sunday, just... I want to mention a few things. Um, I've heard some um, something around that get up are potentially initiating another um, rally or action for Manus, and that will be happening at 12 p.m. on that Sunday. Um, but on that also Sunday, there'll be the first Dog on the Moon book launch. Um, they'll be happening at the M Palladian, um, Queen Victoria Gardens in St Kilda Road in the city. Um, there'll be a rally, Break the Silence on 
not really a rally, but it's sort of like a bit of an action, break the stance on Manus Nauru um, and basically making the call for NGV to cancel its contract with Wilson Security. That'll be happening at 2pm at the National Gallery and it's organised by the Artists Committee. On Friday, um, the 1st of December, there'll be a West Papua um, flag raising day. They'll be happening at the Parliament Steps of Spring Street. And obviously, there'll probably be another refugee rights rally happening on that Friday, on the 1st of December at 5.30. On Saturday, the 2nd of December, there'll be the Resistance Bookshops will be having their end-of-year book sale. Um, That'll be like 25% off all stock, books, pamphlets, and merchandise, um, new and second-hand stock. Donations of books are also welcome. Just call 96398622 to arrange delivery. And they'll be at the Resistance Centre, level 5407 Swanson Street in the city. Um, on Sunday, there'll be the Political Asylum Comedy Night um, happening at the Brunswick Green, 313 Sydney Road in Brunswick. Um, it'll be Tuesday, December the 5th, there'll be a public meeting, Can We Bring Them Here and Prevent Deaths at Sea, happening at 7pm at the New International Bookshop. Um, and on Friday, December the 8th, there'll be a Pentridge Voices from the Other Side, um, which is about one of the... Victoria's largest prison complex and they'll be happening at 7pm at the Coburg Library on Friday, December the 8th. Okay. And tonight, uh, this has been getting a lot of plugs on 3CR and for good reason, you should definitely go and check it out. There is United Struggle Project, uh, The Change, Revolutionary Hip Hop Theatre. That's happening tonight at 7pm and tomorrow at 3pm and that's at the Underground Car Park, 44 Harnsworth Street, Collingwood, uh, go and check that out. I know it's going to be exceptionally um, good. Okay, so we have a bit um, five minutes um, kind of left until our last interview of the program. Um, kind of wanted to bring up a discussion that, that over the weekend, um, um, I'd like to congratulate that Lydia Forp um, won the Northcote by-election um, against um, Labor, which was uh, really – there was a really – large swing to the greens in fact they pretty much um incre- um they pretty much won every single polling booth i think barring one uh which wow. which is pretty incredible so um hands off, uh, off uh, lydia and i think it's you know a great victory for the aboriginal rights movement to see lydia li- elected because lydia is you know she is a militant aboriginal activist mm. um and now she's you know been elected into the state parliament so I think this is, uh, you know, a very good thing for the left um, and the radical left in terms of politics. Um, we'll, it'll be interesting to see what she'll do with her position, especially around this whole question of the Shreedy, um, the Victorian Shreedy process. Um, and we've also previously interviewed her on FreeCR. So I think it's um, great. Although, interesting enough, there's been sort of some interesting kind of analysis yeah, yeah, there's been a bit of analysis, you know, what what precisely is behind this uh, swing and, you know, why why, why did Lydia get elected? Well, my kind of analysis as someone who's of the radical left and left wing is I think it's because people are sick of lab- the Labor Party um, and uh, because the Labor Party haven't been serving the interests of, you know, working people. I mean, I think the Greens have their own limitations, um, I don't think they're, they're everything, but they are filling that kind of role that people saw the Labor Party as, and the Labor people are increasingly becoming increasingly disillusioned with Labor Party. Mm. And I also kind of like want to bring a bit of a plug, although I don't think it was kind of the main reason that Lydia won, but another probably one reason that might have won her some votes over Claire Burns is the fact that she 
actually supports public housing and is against this public housing self, whereas the Labor Party, mm. you know, unashamedly support because, well, they're the ones implementing the, the, the public housing self-offs. And um, despite the fact that, you know, the Labor candidate ran on this sort of strong platform of making housing afford- affordable while at the same time, you know, uh, at the same time campaigning, um, while at the same time support openly supporting these kind of sell-offs of public land. Mm. Um, yeah, and I think there's a bit of a... Because I've seen people campaigning and leafleting around that up near um, Northcote Town Hall on, on High Street. Um, the public housing sell-off, it is something that people are aware of. And I think it's a bit of a... I think the Labor Party insults the intelligence of the electorate when they say, oh, vote for us if you want affordable public housing or, you know, look, we were talking about um, talking about this earlier. There's uh, some people in the Labor Party saying that because the Greens voted against this sell-off of public housing land, then therefore the Greens are opposed to new public housing. It's this kind of cognitive um, gymnastics that the Labor Party do to justify their own bad policy mm. and then they think that they can push that out on the broader mm. population and that people are going to swallow it. Yep. I, I think it's an insult to the intelligence of the Although, although just community. to make one correction there, um, the Labor Party didn't really campaign on public housing as such. Just It was all about making housing affordable in the Northcote by-election. Although I thought their, their thing was a bit weird because basically what they were campaigning on was all was basically they were promising that they'll implement all the renting reforms that the Daniel Andrews government has already promised they'll implement and sort of like there's those those changes are going to be implemented anyway regardless of whether the greens get elected or um, rather regardless of whether the labor party get elected because the greens are going to actually get a vote for those reforms mm. um and labor has a majority so those reforms are actually going to go through regardless so in the parliament so it was a bit of a they weren't really campaigning on anything distinctive that the labor party wasn't already offering nationally um on a state level so um yeah i thought it was a bit of a bit strange there was nothing really unique about what the Labor candidate was coming because it was all stuff that they kind of announced that they were going to do anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, yeah, there would have been no difference whether the Green... Like, even if, say, a right-wing candidate got elected in Northcote by election, those renting reforms would have hmm. gone and implemented anyway. So there, was no, but there wasn't really any sort of um, things campaigned on about, like, that were kind of exclusive to the electorate, um, hmm. which I thought was a bit weird, but... At the same time, Lydia Thorpe did ran quite a really strong campaign, and you know because of her, the fact that she is uh, of her Aboriginal rights background, um, she there was an extra kind of strong Aboriginal rights element to to the Greens platform that they were putting hmm. forward, um, that you wouldn't usually see in a Greens candidate. Yeah, yeah, and I'd like to think that people are looking for answers. Why was there this big swing to Lydia Thorpe? I'd like to think that the most obvious. Um, you know, point of distinction for Lydia Thorpe, which is that she's a staunch Aboriginal activist. That's probably one of the main reasons that there was that swing to her, which is really good to see. Um, yeah, positive stuff. The other thing about it is some of the analysis is saying that there was pretty much cheap gutter smear tactics used by the Labor Party against Lydia Thorpe, and it would appear that that's sort of backfired and... 
rather than bringing more votes to the Labour Party, people are like, it's pretty crass. Um, Why would you resort to that? So, yeah, uh, congratulations once again to Lydia Thorpe. It's uh, Australia's, uh, sorry, Victoria's first Aboriginal MP. And, yeah, a really... Uh, a small but but really significant and important step forward and and very yeah, positive development. All right, you are listening to Green Left Radio on 3CR, and we were just listening to a bit of Let Them Know featuring Mantra from the epically excellent Combat Wombat. And on the line right now to talk about the Smith Bill and the Equal Marriage Campaign more broadly, we have Farida Iqbal. Welcome. Hi. Yeah. All right. So, Farida, what we get start a bit of discussion. What do you think um, is wrong with the the Dean Smith bill at this point in time? Well, there is. Um, I'll start with what, what's right with it. What's right with it is it um, does grant LGBTI people the right to marry, which is a humongous victory um, if it goes through, and has to be. Yeah, anything that's wrong with it has to be seen in that context as well. But um, what's wrong with it? is that there is a part of it that allows civil celebrants to lodge a religious objection to conducting marriages for LGBTI couples. And, yeah, if they lodge a religious um, objection, then they're exempted from having to do it. And um, which is, yeah, that's that's discrimination and it's not on. Hmm. Yeah, and um, but I guess one of the um, interesting things is um, the potential possibly because basically this whole d- debate around religious exemptions um, has actually meant that nothing has been passed in the parliament at this point in time um, and it does seem to be this whole thing about religious exemptions seems to be actually delaying the pathway to marriage equality, especially since um, we have, you know, lib- we have the Victorian Liberal Senator James Patterson, um, who actually was putting a bill that was far worse than the Dean Smith bill, but he's actually saying that the Dean Smith bill is going to be his way, it's going to be the way to the put can, horse. Um, to put more things, more amendments in that will, you know, make things give more rights to for bigots to discriminate against LGBT people, and you know, sort of, what do you think the movement should orientate to sort of resist that kind of happening? Yeah, it's a tricky question. Um, what does the movement do? Um, on the one hand, the movement is kind of exhausted and bedraggled and traumatized by the postal survey, and. Um, yeah, to, to say to that movement that's just been through this, um, okay, now we've got to put up another fight. Like that's a that's a hard thing to put to the LGBTI community. However, um, there are those among us who are pretty tough <laughs> and are used to this sort of thing happening. Um, and yeah, so we've we've just got to well, first of all, demand marriage equality by Christmas, like the government said, like the government promised. And you're right that these religious uh, these moves toward more religious exemptions are a delaying tactic. Um, so yeah, we, we've got a we've got a call for for no more delays. But also, um, and we've got a call for no um, amendments for religious exemptions to be added to the Dean Smith Bill. But also, we've just got to nip this whole trajectory in the bud because really, it's the discrimination that's inherent in the Dean Smith bill already that signals to the religious right that 
um, that 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 more more discrimination could be on the table. Yeah, it's that, that precedent in, in the Dean Smith bill that says that civil celebrants can discriminate that then leads to this train of logic that goes. Well, if civil celebrants can discriminate, then why not bakers? Why not mm. florists? And um, so, yeah, we've just get, got to nip that whole thing in the bud um, as best we can with the forces we've got. Um, yeah, and, and um, we, we might not be able to do that by in time for... Yeah, there might be um, quite an ugly version of the Dean Smith bill that goes through. However, you know, we're in it for, for the long haul, and we want whatever ugly stuff is passed to be overturned by the, um, yeah. If 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 the Labor government gets in at the next election, we want them to overturn it, and we can't trust them to overturn it. We've got to um, maintain the pressure. Hmm. I think one um, one thing kind of wanted to bring up is um, basically one of the things with the Dean Smith bill. I mean, this well, basically just sort of taking the page from the right because the right is sort of going on about this whole argument about, you know, religious freedoms, you know, the right to discriminate. But isn't it true to say that, you know, all these kind of, um, all these sort of religious freedoms such as the right to discriminate are already kind of codified already into law, especially the Anti-Discrimination Act? Because as far as I know, religious um, organisations, for example, you know, still... Um, independent of this marriage equality bill, um, still basically have the power to say, you know, sack someone um, for from like a Catholic school um, for being queer. In fact, there was a recent case of that happening in Western Australia. Yes, you've got that exactly right. Um, and it, the, the Dean Smith bill, if passed in its current form, will reinforce that. Um, it, 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 there is another part of that bill that reinforces the existing exemptions in the um, in anti-discrimination law. And, um, yeah, that's another problem with it. Yeah. And doesn't that um, kind of single, like, sort of like, you know, if we can ma- get marriage quality, do you think kind of like the struggle should kind of move towards, especially for queer rights, should orientate towards trying to get rid of those um, exemptions being qualified, um, these sort of discriminations being qualified into law? And um, what is yeah, your I- comments on that? I think that's exactly right. And um, Rodney Croom, who's been a leading figure of the LGBTI movement since the 1990s, um, he, that's his view as well, that this is the next phase of the LGBTI struggle. Um, yeah. Hmm. yeah. And I think... Oh, yeah, Dane wanted to ask something. Yeah, I mean, we, we've got you on this morning to talk about the Smith Bill and, and you know, potentially ongoing campaigns you know, a year or two down the track to pressure the Labor Party to overturn bad stuff that's included in the Smith Bill. But uh, uh, as someone who's been involved in the marriage equality campaign since very early on, uh, surely it was... How, how did you feel last week when uh, when the yes vote got up? Um, that was pretty amazing. That was pretty amazing. That was That was something... Yeah, that was just unreal. We we couldn't have predicted that at the beginning of the campaign. Well, we we could have, but you know, to actually be there and feel it that that a, a decisive majority of Australians um, supported our right to marry. Um, that, that, that is, yeah, a, a big turn turnaround in social attitudes since the beginning of the campaign when it was something like only thirty eight percent of um, Australians supported our right to marry. To have that flipped over and now it's 
only 30% of Australians who voted no. Like, <laughs> it's, and it's, um, yeah, all sorts of changes to the social fabric you can notice just in everyday interactions. Um, and to me, that's, um, that, that's even more significant than the right to marry itself, that, that social shift. That, that really um, makes a, a big difference to, to our quality of life. Mm. Yeah. yeah but then, on the other hand, there were those 30% who voted no, and, yeah, it's clear that they're just going to stubbornly um, cling... A lot of them are just going to stubbornly cling to that view, and, they're, um, yeah, they're, they're, um, they're, they're going to continue to make our lives hard. <laughs> mm. Yeah, that's a pain as well. Mm. Well, I think kind of like on the bright side is I think it's it's almost like because I think for the well I'm just being optimistic I feel for the majority of those thirty percent it could have just been motivated a lot by different kind of social factors um, and then eventually ten years from now those people will rent when you know you know this whole idea of mar- of queer uh, identity and you know queer marriage becomes normalized that eventually those attitudes would shift but the hard right are going to be the ones that are going to you know keep on trying to push you know bigotry and hate um towards lgbti and that's really where we need to be organizing we need to be constantly you know campaigning against those kind of people well yes yes um i i think however it's not just what we think of as the hard right, it's not just, say, the, I, I don't know, the, um, the, the actual fascist groups like the Antipodean resistance. It's, it's also things like the Catholic Church, you know, institutions like the, the Anglican Diocese of Sydney. And um, they, um, yeah, the Anglican Diocese of Sydney, they, they invested a lot of money into the No campaign. And, um, yeah, they're... they're um, I think they're a bigger um, a bigger barrier to yeah full blown queer liberation than um, than the groups like the Antipodean resistance is at the moment. And um, so yeah, that's that's a yeah. If we want full queer liberation, which I certainly do, um, we we got to figure out what are we going to do about the Anglican Church and also the um, yeah the very well moneyed. Um, U.S. Evangel- evangelical churches in the United States who've been funding also the No Campaign in Australia, um, mm. they're another significant barrier. Mm. Mm. Okay, I guess, um, do you have any kind of final comments, uh, um, Farida? Because we're just about to run out of time. <laughs> okay. Um, well, the struggle continues. And, um, yeah, I want to I want to I, I get a protest or something happening about the Dean Smith bill in um, in Melbourne. First of all, cal- calling for no more delays, but also for no um, discrimination in the final marriage equality legislation. And so, yeah, um, I, I'm just in early stages of getting them off the, that off the ground. But if anybody's interested, they can call me on 0412 109 160. Hey. Yeah, nice. Thank you very much, Farida. Good to see that in the, in the lead up to, uh, yeah, Christmas. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> All, right. All right. Well, um, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks again for coming on the show. All right. Okay. See ya. Uh, um, yes, uh, Farida Iqbal there, who's a um, leading marriage 
quality campaigner over many years, formerly based in Perth, and uh, yeah, still involved in the struggle, celebrating victory, but also looking at the uh, the struggle ahead because the fight ain't over yet. Uh, all right, we're going to hand it over because uh, Beyond Zero uh, coming up next. So thanks again for listening to Green Left Radio, and yeah. we will catch you again next Friday morning. Yeah, we'll catch you again next Friday. Bye. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio. Brought to you by the Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which provides a weekly source of alternative information which aims to inspire action to put people and the environment first. If you would like to subscribe to the newspaper and get it delivered to your door, you can do so by visiting the website at greenleft.org.au or call 1-800-634-206. For new subscribers, it is only $10 for the first six issues. Repeats of the show and interviews are podcasts on our homepage on the 3CR website. Thank you for listening. You are tuned into 3CR Community Radio, 855 Digital on the AM dial and streaming.